Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London and hosted by me, Adrian Wooten, CEO of Film London, where we talk to people from across the screen industries about what they've created and how they've created it. In this week's episode, we're looking at science fiction, undoubtedly one of the fastest growing and most popular genres today. Developing far from its roots as a niche platform with cult popularity through superheroes and the support of major studios, sci-fi franchises have grown to the status of cultural giants. This week, we're talking to two people who contribute significantly to our sci-fi film landscape in very different ways. We have Sammy Differ, the two-time BAFTA-nominated costume designer behind some of the most iconic science fiction characters in cinema. She's worked on V for Vendetta, Hellboy 2, X Machina and X-Men First Class. We're also talking to Gregorius Kithriotis, creative director of sci-fi game Sable. Finally, we have Gavin J. Rothery, the writer and director behind Cult Sci-Fi Archive and the concept designer behind space exploration games Star Citizen and Duncan Jones' seminal sci-fi classic movie Moon. First, here's Sammy Differ discussing costuming and superheroes with Laura Stratford from our partnerships team. Hello, Sari. How are you? Hello. I'm very good. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's, it's a really great opportunity to interview you today. Um, first things first, Sammy. I mean, obviously, the, the costume world is such a fascinating and like artistic kind of area of the filmmaking process. Um, I'm curious to kind of just go back to the beginning, really, with your story and ask you, sort of, when, when did you first realise that you wanted to become a costume designer? When I was really young, I um, before I was even 10, I think, because I used to be interested in, in making things, making, make, I think before I got into making clothes, I used to make things out of dried spaghetti and like weird stuff. When I was really little, I used to play a lot with stuff like that. Um, and then I think around nine or 10, I got quite in, I was very into horses, but the sideline was always kind of like, I was interested in clothing as well. And I think, um, I think my first big sort of like realization was when I saw the first Star Wars film in 1977. And I, and I remember sitting in the theater with my mom and I said, I really want to do this, but I don't know what that means. Like, I don't, I don't know. What is this? But how does this ha- what happen? And I was only ten, and uh, and then between ten and sixteen, I I really got into cl- making clothes. So I think when I was about fourteen, I was making like new romantic frilly shirts when everyone else was still trying to do a you know a seam straight. Uh, and my mum used to make all our clothes when we were little because um, we were from up north and it was a bit grim there. Um, and uh, and and so that was in our family. Making stuff was in our family. So learning to sew was just like second nature, really. Um, and and I, I really took it on board. And then at 16, I decided that I wasn't going to stay on at school and do A-levels. I was going to go to art college. So I went um, to the Royal, uh, uh, Rochdale College of Art uh, and did um, an intermediate, it was like the just like the first year of, of like doing art at college. And then I did, um, and I did A-levels in one year and then I did a foundation course. And then 
like the whole course when I was there was all geared towards fashion and I I really didn't want to do that so I I used to kind of pull all my projects into kind of theatre and ballet and trying to tailor it because there wasn't any costume courses then Uh, not not for design there was for making and then when I got to 18 I couldn't get on a degree course because I was too young so I went and begged the Royal Exchange Theatre in Manchester to give me a job uh, for not for nothing so I just worked for nothing and And it, that's where it kicked off, basically. And as you say, you know, there weren't, you know, that wasn't a thing at the time, right? The courses, it, it no, sort of how was, to. There was one in Liverpool, and then there was theatre design, but there wasn't costume design. And I wasn't really interested in theatre design as a whole because that you, you always got pushed into um, the sets first because that was the big thing. And costume was definitely something that theatre designers did. It was like a job you did both things but there wasn't the emphasis on just being costume and you know now I look back you know the, the history of costume designers in film is quite a new thing um you know in the in sort of 40s 50s 60s they were you were a wardrobe mistress and then they would get designers in so it wasn't even a role it's only in the sort of 70s really that it became a proper you know role that was a- acknowledged I mean there was obviously people like Edith Head um you know who worked you know with Hitchcock and all, all those kind of things like that but it was still quite not not a job until much more recently so the the, the emphasis in education was never for costume and it's funny you just mentioned Edith Head and I was just curious you know were there any key sort of inspirational costume design sort of figures when you started out in the business I mean, you know, I I saw, so Star Wars was a very big, it's always been there in the back of my mind when I saw the very, you know, number four. Um, it's just such a an amazing storytelling through everything in the film that it really hooked me. And then when I got to art college, obviously you watch, you watched all these avant-garde things and, you know, there was a film club and and I really got into kind of watching films I used to love watching westerns and I used to love watching black and white uh, you know the hammer horrors and all those things when I was young um and then obviously as you get a bit older and I got into theatre I I became a real purist and thought I must work in theatre it's the only you know medium that's pure and you kind of I got really hooked into it but actually it I got my mind got kind of opened up as I watched more and more films. And, you know, I think one of the people that struck me in my late teens and early 20s was Sandy Powell, because, you know, she did some amazing stuff when I was in my teens um, and, and, and was kind of going up, up, up the ladder, you know. And then, um, gosh, I'm thinking back, um, while I was at the Royal Exchange, I worked with some amazing designers who then went into film and some directors. I was an, I was a trainee working with all the cutters, learning, making period stuff, you know, what have you. And, and some of the directors there then later went on into film as well. And it feels like that's a journey and, and that I ended up actually following. Um, and so towards the end of me working at the Royal Exchange, I was about 22, 23. Um, I, the, the the supervisor said to me, you're wasted doing this. You can do this. You can make, but you know you need to go and design. I'm going to set you some projects with, and the, there was a, a designer there called uh, David, um, David Short, 
who was had the most amazing ability to draw and it, and his work I think was also something that was very influential in the way that I like to put things on paper and and so he was a big inspiration so they they set me some projects and I got into Wimbledon School of Art to do the costume design course which had only been running for one year um so that's you know and and then from that I then got into film started and and my first thing into kind of film was um assisting on pop promos <laughs> I did a pop promo oh brilliant <laughs> yeah it was East 17 and the designer was David, David Blight. And um, I worked with him for about two years. And what we did, a, we did a hilarious musical uh, in Birmingham. Um, and then, and then he got this, um, this pop promo for East 17. So I assisted him on it and met all these people who were doing pop promos and they were, and they were all young and funky and West London. And so I kind of just put, you know, head first, into this world of of doing pop promos, then I met people in film, and ended up um, assisting Janty Yates on uh, Punkit McLean and Gladiator. So I think it's just it, it's like one of those things. You know, people ask me how how did you set about getting into it, and I didn't. I just went, "This is great. I'm doing this now," and it just kind of followed. You know, just amazing. I mean, the films that you have worked on. It's it's ridiculous. I mean, you mentioned Gladiator, and then there's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh-huh. There's Kinky Boots, yeah. B for Vendetta, like Kickass, Gulliver's Travels. I mean, you could just go on and on. It's just incredible. Um, I'm I'm curious to know. So you've worked on comic book adaptations for quite a while, right? Yeah. You know, B for Vendetta, yeah. Hellboy to Marvel. You know, with Ant Man yeah. and Eternals. Have you noticed a difference? in the way in which you sort of work in between, you know, the self-contained comic book worlds versus the Marvel cinematic universe? As you go along, I think one of the things you you realise is every film has its own life. So, and, and, and as you go along, you learn more. So, you know, when I look back to when I did Stardust, for instance, I was so young and I had no kind of like, you know, now the knowledge I've got of... of all the things we have to do in terms technically, um, I didn't really know that. I just like making nice frocks and you know designing stuff and and characterizing things. And um, I I don't think I work any differently because I'm very organic in the way that I work. I certainly don't um, like I, I I I draw and paint, and I kind of want my costumes to look like what's on the page with all the drips and paint and everything that isn't always possible in, in certain films. It depends what it is, if it's, you know, the difference between modern or period. Um, but I kind of, I think I have an organic process, which needs starts with building up shape and then texture and then color. And then, you know, um, I'm working with the, the actors and the directors and stuff and building the characters. Um, I think the difference between, other films I've done and universes that I've worked with um, is that they they have, you know, um, an overview of how they want things to be, to fit into the jigsaw. So you may end up be, being presented with um, a concept that you have to then work with. So that's, the, that's probably the only difference. But within that, it's there's such a lot of work and kind of development that comes with that, that it's still part of the design process 
because ultimately the costume is never finished until the actor's on stage and they've shot it because you can still be changing things, you know, through every fitting. And, you know, we one of the things I find now is we do a lot more fittings on particularly these big movies. So you have, you know, your one actor might do six or eight fittings with the with the superhero suit. Whereas, you know, in, I say Stardust or V for Vendetta, apart from V, who I think we've fitted a few times, you get one or two fittings. So now it's it's mu- there's much more of a process. Um, and also as we've gone on, we use more tech, like um, a lot of uh, 3D printing to print out uh, shapes and models for armor and helmets and um, buckles and, you know, stuff that is hard costume stuff or pro- costume props. Um, we use a lot more high tech stuff now, whereas 10 years ago, we would clay mold and, you know, you'd work it out on the body, then make a, a cast of it. Whereas now you can kind of, you know, do it in CAD and print it out and see if it works. Um, so there's, I think the speed at which things need to be done is, needs to be done faster, but in fact, we get more prep on a big job. So it's kind of hard to judge that one. Would you say the same goes for sort of the levels of creative freedom you get? with each project or has it been relatively free sort of throughout your career? Yeah. I mean, the creative, I feel like I get a lot of creative freedom. I feel like I, I'm quite opinionated. (laughs) And I, I, you know, I'll say if something, you know, but I also, I am, because I think I, I, I'm a bit kind of arty. And so I don't necessarily, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like super organized and, and great with paperwork and, I'm I'm very much more like, you know, paint and, you know, see what comes out. Um, so I think creative freedom, again, is something that comes with each project. So it depends whether it's what the directors are like, what, what studio it is, what, who the producers are, how much they want you to bring to the table. Usually they want you to bring quite a lot and that's fine. That's great. But equally, you want some boundaries in order for it to be within the, the the correct context for the film so we all are working in the same bubble you know for the universe of whatever the film might be um so a little bit of sort of guidance is good uh but within that there's there is always creative freedom do you have a do you have a favorite director that you've worked with yeah i do you know actually most of the people that that i've worked with have been really fun um, and, you know, I think, mm, I mean, I was so in awe of working with Ridley when I did Black Hawk Down. Um, you know, he's amazing. And he he he, he kind of, he draws. So I, I immediately kind of get that, you know, thing. On, on Gladiator, obviously, I was um, Janty's assistant on that. But I got let into a lot of the kind of creative side, obviously, because I, I was, yeah, in there. But um, the... Uh, yeah, then working with Ridley on on Blackhawk was just you know fab, and he he is it's like you know the vista and the painting it's all it's all in there, um, and um, Guillermo del Toro is just amazing. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> I really really enjoyed uh, doing Hellboy too. Um, he he's like just the way his approach is to color and light and texture and you know, the journey that the, the the audience is pulled through in terms of a visual um, 
incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 yeah, I mean, I love Peyton. He's fantastic. He's such a lovely guy. And it's, you know, it's fun to work with him again. You know, I, I mean, Assassin's Creed was uh, uh, a real journey. That was such a big kind of build film for us. Um, and Justin is, again, got a real artist. You know, he's in his head. He's he's really kind of deep and um, artistic, you know. And I, I love that. I, I kind of feed off that. I love it when you can have a conversation with the director and the production designer and it's all about colour and texture and the big, you know, we'll take it here or there and pull in references. And it's, a, it's good to have that backwards and forwards. Do you have any advice for aspiring costume designers now? I mean, obviously you mentioned earlier, right, that it's not like you went to school to study, although you did, but not like for your whole yeah. sort of formative experience of like learning how to design costumes. Yeah. Is it is it something that you would still encourage to sort of learn at art school in some way or is it still better to learn on the job what's your view of it now in the industry now I definitely think it's both I think it would that these days there's so much competition and we get so many girls and boys actually we get so many people I should say coming in wanting to design or make or do breakdown or whatever um and I and so the best advice I could give is to do go and do a degree whether it be textiles, costume, or what, as long as it's within, you know, that sort of boundary, um, and learn as much as you can. Learn about history of art, history of fashion, history of politics, you know, all those things that are intertwined in what makes human beings who they are, um, all the, you know, what the, the, the world through the years is it's really important to have a grounding of it's not just about fabric it's a you know designing costumes for films and theater is is about people and characters and building a building a character so all those aspects of of who we are are important so you know be a sponge um watch loads of movies do a degree see if you can become um you know get a placement on a film to get some experience and then maybe get a trainee position but it's and there's a lot of film out there at the moment but um it is being you know sort of sucking in all the kind of research and learning about fabrics learning about new techniques something I don't know which I wish I did is photoshop and cad that would be in, uh, something that I think you know costume designers of the future probably would be well you know standing good stead to, to learn that is there a sort of a site you just mentioned Photoshop and, you know, tools that people could do with equipping themselves with now if they want to get into the business, but is there another piece of advice that you, you kind of wish that you were given when you were starting out in the costume biz? I think, I think it would be, um, you never stop learning, uh, never stop learning, never think you know everything because every job is, is and, and I, I kind of, I suppose I kind of knew that, but I just kind of, you know, went through what I was doing. Not really. I don't know. I don't know. That that's a, that's a bit of advice more than anything. Is you never stop learning. Um, and advice that someone might have given me. Um, I'd never. I didn't actually know that I was going to be where I am now. I really didn't. I really just enjoyed what I did. And um, actually, 
there, there were a few people who I came across throughout my career who helped me. And I really have remembered all the things that they've said to me. Um, and I ignored all the people who said, you'll never get to do that. Um, you know, that, that was just like, I couldn't even hear that, you know, but at the same time, something that is really important in, in our job in costume is to be open to everything that people suggest and not think you, your way is the only way. That's quite uh, an interesting kind of psychology to have because you, you, you're, it's teamwork. You, you are never a sole person doing any job in film. It's all, the, the, the whole film is made by a lot of people and therefore you can't ever think that you're, you know, the only one. The director is, you know, but even he needs us to help, help him along the way. And, it, and teamwork is probably the most important thing to have inside you is the ability to work within a team and appreciate your your fellow costume team um, because they work, mine work really hard and they're amazing. And uh, I appreciate all of them. And, and also be a, you know, you're a fig, I'm the figurehead, but I want to, I, I don't want to be treated as if like somehow I'm unattainable. I, I feel like I'm the same as everyone else and uh, we're all working to the same end. Wow. What an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you, Sammy. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. <laughs> a huge thanks to Sammy for taking part in that chat. You can see her work next in Marvel's Eternals in UK cinemas from November the 5th, 2021. Now, here's Gregorius Kithriotis discussing his sci-fi influences and the making of Sable with our head of games, Michael French. Greg, hi. Uh, thanks so much for joining us uh, on this discussion, the Film London podcast, all around sci-fi. And I'd love to start by hearing from you about your studio's new game, Sable. I mean, what's the story and there and where did it come from? And, I'm ta- and I mean both like sort of the story in game and then the behind the scenes, how you got how you came up with it. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I guess in terms of so the game story itself is uh, you play as Sable, um, and she's a girl living with her clan, uh, growing up with her clan in a uh, kind of a nomadic society, and um, it's set in this desert landscape on this desert planet. And um, as part of this nomadic society's culture. Uh, when children start to hit adulthood, they leave home and they go on what's called a gliding. And it's kind of like rite of passage um, where they go and explore the world and they choose a mask to wear. And masks are really important in this society because everyone wears a mask and it kind of signifies different cultural or functional meanings. Um, And so the objective of the game is to try out lots of different masks and then go home and pick the mask that Sable will choose to live with uh, going forward, um, basically. And that's it. That's it on the kind of core narrative uh, layer. But there's, um, but, you know, the world itself is a, is a character that the player goes on to discover and they meet lots of other different people as they explore this world. And that's kind of the game is discovery. It's about discovering these kind of monumental architectures, these, fallen spaceships and these uh, nomadic and static settlements where people have set up and live now on this desert planet and have kind of 
adapted uh, to this unique and particular environment. Um, and that's the kind of core of the game. You drive around on a hover bike. I should probably mention that because it's kind of a big part of what you do. Um, and, you know, as, as the game is quite contemplative, it's quite slow paced in a lot of ways. Um, and it's quite big in a lot of ways, like because it's a, it's a desert landscape. We wanted to make it feel quite lonely and, and uh, I wouldn't say empty because we want to make it feel like it is teeming with life in some ways, but uh, lonely is the right word, I think. Um, just because I think that's a, uh, you know, it's kind of how Sable would be feeling uh, leaving home for the first time. Um, but in terms of how we started the game itself, um, so uh, I run a studio called Shedworks with a bis- my business partner, uh, Daniel Feinberg, and we started Shedworks in my parents' shed, hence the name. Um, and we worked in my parents' shed for five years. And for the first, so for the first two years of Sable, we were still working in there. And we started the game. We, so the first idea for the game kind of came from almost the opening trailer or the op- the beginning of uh, The Force Awakens. There's a kind of uh, Ray on Jakku um, that set up. But the idea was more, what if you played a game and you were someone who never left? You weren't the hero. You just lived in this sort of environment. And that was it. Um, and it, the idea kind of flourished from there and became its own thing, I think. And, um, you know, in some ways, on a superficial level, our world is similar to Jakku but I think in other ways it's very different and it, it's it's a more settled place and there are people are more established and uh, permanent I think um, but that was the kind of original seed of an idea and we did um, we did a very early prototype uh, whilst we were kind of doing contract work on other projects um, it took about two hours it was just a hovercraft in a desert landscape and that idea kind of we took it to the pub. There's a London Indies pub meetup, and uh, we'd taken stuff before, but nobody really cared. Um, uh, but then when we took this, something about it was evocative and, and, and powerful, and we kind of noticed that it was just like, oh, we did the littlest amount of work with the, for the most powerful effect. So there's something here. There's something uh, interesting, and that just that feeling of like we had a, just a giant cube in the distance of this desert landscape, and you could just drive off to it and. There was something about that sense of wanderlust and exploration and just, okay, that's an interesting idea. We need to make it so that when you get there, there's something interesting to explore. But the journey is such a powerful experience that we think we could make something cool from that. I mean, we never thought it would be something financially viable. We thought it was just going to be a side project for ourselves. Um and so for the first year, we kind of did it as a side project. We were pitching it and we weren't getting any real response. I think that was probably because of our naive pitching more than anything else. But um, but we did that for the first year. And then we we kind of said, well, let's just let's just put some gifts up on Twitter, things that we we think could look good. And it it kind of blew up from there and then the ball just got rolling. We signed with a publisher. We got funding. We we started to build a team. We got it, and then we started to work on it. And uh, that led to 
us doing a very public trailer in 2018, um, probably too too early. Um, definitely, I, 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 you know, felt at the time, oh, this is this is quite early. We didn't really have a game, you know. It's just kind of like a concept trailer almost, um, you know, using in-engine stuff, using stuff that we knew we could get done. But um, in terms of like, there was no open world at that point. There was no like, you could talk to people, but there was no writing. There was not, you know, there was nothing like that. Um, and then we spent the next, I guess, three years after that developing it. So I, so I think it's interesting you talking about the the original prototype and the uh, wanderlust, as you put it, and they're kind of this exploring this world. And you know, I was I was playing it again last night before we spoke, and that that stuff still in that, that's obviously carried all the way through, right? And this it's this vast space you're in. And there's hints of like old technology, artifacts, statues, and all this throughout this world. And I'm just trying to keen to understand how you, as you planned that out, what what other inspirations did you draw from? What what were you what were you saying to yourselves? Like we must make sure this world does this because obviously, you know, you're having to create glimpses of these other technologies and other and other other cultures through how players discover things. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we had we were very protective of that idea that feeling of wanderlust like every decision every design decision we made had to feed into that and if it if it hurt that feeling then we would really work against putting it in so like even combat for example it's not a combat game because we felt like it would hurt that feeling and at some point we talked about being a survival game and and that didn't happen because we thought it hurt that but in terms of inspirations you know we obviously i brought star wars as one uh mobius is another obvious one um just from the style, visual stylings. And I think from his drawings, you know, you can see when you look at one of Mobius's drawings, there's just something about it that is so, you read a world beyond the panel, you know, you, you, it, there's something about it that implies a culture or a world outside of the drawing. And I think, uh, you know, I think that's a form of storytelling that we really value. So we looked at, we think about stuff like Shadow of the Colossus in terms of games, Dark Souls, you know, things that don't necessarily tell you really direct narratives, but you can infer narrative by um, observing and by just, just they give off a sense of narrative. And I think, um, and also Shuya Ghibli was a big inspiration in those terms as well. You know, and even June and stuff. I I think it's just about these implied worlds and narratives that that you know are bigger than the story they're telling, and this and but also, I think what's really important to us uh, is that you're not the hero, and that other people are inhabiting these spaces and this world and going about their lives, and that uh, will carry on when you're done as a player, and were there before you arrived as a player. And I think that's something that video games, video games are often about power fantasy and about giving the player power. And so they don't really care so much about you as a player feeling like this place is going to continue to exist or did exist before I arrived. They're like, okay, no, this scenario exists purely for you as a player. And that's okay, you know, for certain experiences, but it's not what we, we, what we were looking to do. Um, So, um, so again, in terms of the, the the type of storytelling we we're doing, it was it was about that, and that, those are the kinds of references we we looked at. Um, I'm trying to think what other there were just so many. I mean, a lot of the stuff we looked at as well was architectural. So my background is in architecture, um, 
and I guess some, I guess you could call it sci-fi architecture, some of the archigram, the metabolists, uh, architecture that was, or some people would call it paper architecture, but architecture that will never get made, but it's about ideas, um, was always stuff that interested me as a student studying architecture and were things that I wanted to explore in our game. And marrying that sort of uh, fantastical uh, ideas of architecture with a more vernacular, localized architecture that you see the like nomadic people in their world living in, um, putting those side by side just creates this nice contrast. It, but it also gives the world a sense of like um, being lived in. So that was a, another important aspect that we we took a lot from so architecture was a big reference for us uh, i definitely you definitely feel that and you know especially for, um you feel it throughout but the start of the game where you start off in a temple and you you walk out of it and then you see your where you live in the distance and it's there's a mix of there's a mix of architecture to it but there's little pop-up tents but they have this like you said the hover bikes and so there's there's this there is this pitch there is this feeling of a bigger world that you may never fully understand because because your role is slightly different in it so yeah, and we didn't want to explain every part of that. Um, you know, we have vague timelines in our heads and stuff, but we don't. We're not like we haven't got a law bible that is just really detailed. Like, oh, this war happened at this point. This, you know, when I when I'm making an environment, I have a rough idea or or I have a sense of what the narrative of this space is and try and design around that. But um, but with an idea that nobody else will ever know this stuff one because it's less work for me and two because um because i think if you imbue that narrative in a space you, you i think as a player you kind of get a sense of the layers that are there but um but you don't even necessarily want to know it's not about knowing it's, it's just about it being there and um i think that was something that we were very kind of philosophically tied to um you know with our approach and we were quite stubborn about and i actually it's really interesting that you're saying about not having a a big law book in you know and whereas in sci-fi and science you know whether it's on screen or on the page there's a there's a lot about the law and the text and we you know we need to respect the timeline and all this and some of the things you mentioned have you know they have shelves and shelves of spin-off books or or you know they're from big series but you know, it's all about world building for you guys. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we, we have a sense of a lot of those, of a lot of those things, a lot of the history and, you know, you have to do that stuff to, to embed things into the narrative. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying, I'm more saying, I don't think we are so fussy about really intense details. Like this person did this thing at this. I think that stuff, um, well, I think you need a lot of time and resources to do that. And we are a very small team. So that's obviously one side of it. But I think, you know, we saw that as a strength and we saw that as, okay, no, we want to tell this looser story. Um, and it was just, it's not that I don't think those things are valuable uh, to a, to certain projects, but for this project, I think uh, we really felt like that actually added to the mystery of the world and that sense of wanderlust. And uh, you will never fully understand this place. Um, because nobody can um and i think that's okay i think that's you know that that's just the world we made um yeah is it is it can i ask i was wondering this just when i played it 
you know, is it the same with them and, and playing it and knowing that it came from a smaller team than, you know, some massive AAA blockbuster? Was, was that, but is that somehow what drove using masks as a device because they're static and you don't have to, you don't have to animate any character faces, right? If everyone's wearing a mask. Yeah, that's I, exactly, that's literally what, what made that decision for us. I mean, so originally it was just me and Daniel and uh, like I mentioned, my background is architecture. So doing people is, you know, I, I started doing, doing Sable and, you know, I actually have drawings with her face in it somewhere, but, um, but, you know, we wanted to have other characters that you met and it was just like, this is going to be a nightmare to animate and make this look good. So what if everyone just wears a mask and then, you know, if, if everyone wears a mask, you have to then do the world building around it, but we kind of embrace those limitations. So, you know, the lack of combat, yes, that's part of like the type of game we wanted to make, but it's also, we didn't think we, we as a team were big enough or resourced enough to do good combat. So we were like, okay, because it takes so much animation work, it takes so much programming work uh, and so much play testing and iteration that we were just like, okay, what if we just don't do it? Then it, our game is probably better, but then you have to design the whole experience to work with that. Yeah, and I think, you know, the masks thing, I'm not to belittle it, it, it came from limitation, but you can't imagine that game, you know, your game without it now. It's such a key, you know, element to it. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, we really wanted that to be true of every... So, like, the, the hover bikes, for example, in the game, that was another thing that was like, okay, well, we need a vehicle for the player to go around in. But this, if, you, if, if you're going to have that, it has to be an important... Because it's such a different thing, it has to be an important cultural artefact. It has to be an important cultural element. And, yeah, the masks... Like, I, I'm really glad to hear that you say you can't imagine a game without it because that means I think we did a good job with it. Um I think if you could imagine a game without it, then then maybe it was pointless to do it. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, and, and actually it ended up being the entire objective of the game. You have to get masks to finish the game. Um, and so I think it kind of, you know, that's where design happens, right? It's when you have these limitations and you have to work with them. And okay, you have two or three different limitations that you have to find a kind of, meeting point between and then and then it resolves itself in a kind of nice interesting or unique way um and i think i think that's the masks did give us that actually uh, mm. and, and then the other thing i wanted to ask you is about this it, it's it's this you know the story is this coming coming of age stroke rite of passage style thing and you know when, when people talk about sci-fi this is about a lot of tropes but this is this is a really useful device for sable right it took for you to use narratively and as a game design thing um talk a bit about how you know what, what that set up in the game for you and then how you kind of elaborated on it as it goes along yeah i mean in terms of you're exploring a world but the player the character also has to be somewhat ignorant of it we didn't want her to be just an empty shell. We wanted her to have character. We wanted her to be a person. Um, but she also has to be seeing things for the first time because I think as a player, we want the player to like empathize with what she's going through. And so if the player is experiencing something for the first time and Sable's, you know, there's a connection there. Um, and then she can reflect on that in the text that we, we have. Um, so it being a rite of passage is useful but it's also useful that she's a character who has lived in this world too so maybe she'll encounter something she's heard of before and will explain it to the player so we have that kind of useful mechanism there in terms of the narrative um and i think you know rite of passage i think 
in terms of the masks and that setup was really helpful for us in terms just just mechanically uh, but also in terms of the themes we wanted to explore you know i think it how someone becomes an adult in a society tells you a lot about that culture and that society and so by making that the focal point of our game it gave us a, a, a useful lens to look at the world um and it also in terms of the quests structure you know video games have quests that's just kind of what they do a lot of the time um it being part built into the rite of passage was something that we felt was somewhat unique in that people were expecting you as a character and they kind of said oh glider i need i need your help and i've got a reward for you and that was a very okay that's built into the world and it makes total sense in terms of the world we've built whereas a lot of games uh it, it it's kind of arbitrary and kind of random why someone would give you a quest and why they would reward you and some games get get around it quite nice like the witch is a, a good example of how they built that into the world building and, and the witcher as a character um but there are other games that don't really engage with that and are just like no it's a video game so you get quests uh and that was that uh and I think we really, that was what we were trying to avoid with a lot of our design. And um, what were the, were there any sort of um, like sci-fi pitfalls or tropes, things you were like from the get-go, we can't, we must avoid this. You know, I, I'm sick of hearing this. I mean, the the saving the world type thing, that was definitely something we wanted to avoid. Like over, overdoing the lore, over detailing the lore and kind of giving too much information. Again, that was something we wanted to avoid. Uh, I mean... In a lot of ways, yes, it, it's sci-fi in a lot of ways, but in, in some other ways, it, I think of it almost like a fantasy narrative as well. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't think we ever thought to ourselves, oh, we're making a sci-fi game, so it has to fit into these sorts of things. And I think, yeah, I think that over-explaining like things was something we did want to avoid. And I think one thing that we really tried to do was not uh, not take ourselves too seriously, not take the world too seriously so the characters in the world you know they live in it so there's there's a sense of humor that they have about things that i think i think we tried to bring like our our sense of humor into the game and i think in some ways it's quite a british uh british sense of humor um but uh there's a bit of silliness that we wanted to kind of bring bring to it that again would make it feel warmer would make it feel more lived in and more real um and i think that's always what it is because i think we could have taken this much more detached cold scientific approach but we actually wanted to take this more like human warm like approach to it and that was yeah that was that was kind of more what we yeah. wanted to do I, I definitely you definitely feel in the dialogue and and the writing both both the things people say and then when you have her internal monologue that kind of um that the British dryness, I think, is what I'm trying to say. And, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, our writer, right, well, our writers, they're, they're Canadian, but I think we had lots of conversations. I think they really got a sense of, like, who we were. And, and I mean, a lot of the quest planning was done by myself or with Daniel. Um, and I think some of that stuff, like, the objectives are a bit... Like, there's one objective where you're just collecting beetle poo, and it's a bit, like, silly, and it's just... We just tried to be a bit wry with it and a bit uh, and a bit not too reverent of our own 
thing. I think it would be very easy to be quite pretentious about it. Um, don't necessarily have big problem with uh, being a bit pretentious. Uh, I think, you know, it can be quite fun, especially in video games. I think video games sometimes lack that. But I think we wanted to make something that I think pretentious gets tiring very quickly. And if you're making a 10, 20 hour game, then you need to kind of cut cut through it occasionally. And I think that's that's a Ghibli thing as well, where I think they have that um, where, you know, they'll have they'll be dealing with something quite serious, but then also cut in something quite cute or quite funny or quite silly or a bit unexpected. And I think that stuff really uh, creates a fun pacing to, um, yeah. Brilliant. Uh, thank, uh, thanks, Greg. That was really, really insightful. No, thank you so much. Uh, it's been great to chat. Huge thank you to Gregorius for that interview. Sable is currently available to purchase on Steam as well as on Xbox consoles. Next up, here's Gavin J. Rothery talking about the art of science fiction with our production officer, Sanjeevi Krishnan. Well, hi, Gavin. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. Hello. Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to be here. Um, so last year saw the release of your sci-fi feature archive, which I really enjoyed. It's a, it's a great premise in uh, an interesting, a really interesting world, but it's also anchored in real emotion. The moments that stayed with me were some of the more personal character beats. And I think that that's something, that's a real challenge and skill of sci-fi that I thought you did really well. Now, you've previously worked on Moon, which is a modern sci-fi classic. But before we get to Moon and Archive, I'd like to jump back to the start of your journey. If you could tell us a little bit about how realistic a creative career seems to you growing up in 1980s Yorkshire. Well, it always seemed to me to be um, at least possible. That was how I kind of had it pinned. It's possible because every Saturday I'm reading 2000 AD, I'm disappearing into these worlds, I'm soaking up all this beautiful artwork, I'm you know, enjoying these stories with these characters that have been written and created. So it was obviously possible, like there were people out there that were making it. But this is like, you know, the late 80s, early 90s in Yorkshire, in West Yorkshire. And I can't blame the education system for doing what it was doing because it was just trying to make sure that you could get a job. So, but their approach to the creative side of things was don't worry about it, it's basically impossible. What you want to do, because I was in the Air Cadets at the time, and I, I wanted to be a pilot. So they were like, okay, well, that's great. Join the RAF, be a pilot or um, work in the Halifax Building Society, which was like the big employer, the local employer that hoovered up anybody with A-levels. And, you know, I just, Halifax Building Society was out because I was, I'm not great with maths and I just thought, I don't want to work in it. I can't do it. You know, I mean, you know, fair play to anyone that does work in a bank. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't, it's not me. You know, I'm too, I'm too, I get itchy. I've got itchy trousers when it comes to things like that. I got to get up and move around, you know. So, and the RAF thing was out when, as I got a little bit older and I sort of thought, you know, I like the idea of flying fast jets and stuff. That's awesome. But if I'm, someone's going to tell me to drop a bomb on somebody, I kind of need to know a bit more about it. I need to know who they are and why we're dropping bombs on them rather than just getting your plane and drop a bomb. Obviously that's not how the military works. So as soon as I kind of had that little emotional epiphany when I was growing up, I was like, okay, well, you know, military is not really my thing. I kind of asked too many questions for that really. So yeah, that I was, you know, I just, I just wanted to do comics. It was, it's one of those things where 
if you're really chasing like an art field, it just comes out of you anyway, right? It's like people working with music. You have like musicians that write albums in the bedrooms when they're doing their A-levels because that's just, they have to do it, it just comes out of them. And that was me at school. That was me just drawing all the time. You know, I've got exams to revise for multiple subjects. It stressed me out. I'm not quite sure how to prioritize it. So I just draw comics instead. I just concentrate on my artwork. And like, I'm not saying this is like life advice for anybody who's going through education, but that's what I did. I just, I just went for it. And I mean, I was fortunate with my parents, like they, they just completely kind of let me get on with it. They could see what I was doing and they could see I was kind of doing a thing and working towards something. So they just kind of let me get on with it and didn't, didn't moan at me, which was great because trying to do that and getting moaned at at the same time would have been quite tricky, I think. So I think I was quite lucky in that I had a clear path of kind of energy. I didn't have like negative energy coming at me whilst I was doing it. I just, apart from the school stuff, but I just disregarded it, to be honest. Sure. That's terrible I mean, advice, isn't it? <laughs> Disregard your career's advice from school. That's my advice. Well, I think what you said is is absolutely true that if if there is an art form that you're really passionate about, you just end up doing it in some way, no matter what. Like, you know, you're going to say you're taking breaks from your A-levels and like, you know, doing like improvising little riffs on your guitar if you're a musician for example like you just you you can't help but do it and I think it's yeah it's just a matter of where and when um but I, I um I'm curious you know your your interest in joining joining the RAF and being a pilot you did some really cool spaceship and plane concept design for Star Citizen the very popular multiplayer space trading and combat game and I'm wondering is was that something you know many years later where you're looking back and you're thinking oh like the thoughts that i had about being a pilot and um the mindset that i wanted to have in an aircraft did that play into any of your your design choices all of it it's all one thing it's the stuff that led me towards joining the air cadets was at the time the the hot plane the raf was flying was a tornado and the variants of the tornado the you know the the fast jet and, you know, that was my, my upbringing was, um, it was the Tornado and the Apache gunship. Those were my two kind of crushes as a, as a kid, my kind of vehicle crushes as a kid. I wasn't so much into like Lamborghinis and Porsches and stuff. You know, I was into the Tornado, the Apache, grow up a little bit, find out about things like the Vulcan and the Victor V4 bombers, things like that. Those were the, the things that pulled me. You know, I wasn't interested in having a Harley Davidson when I grew up. You know, I wanted to ride around in tornadoes and Apaches. So that was my my whole thing as a kid. And there's a there's a theory that I've I've come to um I've come to understand there's um I don't know who coined this, but there's a theory about being 14 years old and having everything locked in, like everything that you like when you're 14, it kind of locks in as your personality is forming and you're starting to go um from you know transition from being a child to being an adult and you're starting to think more like an adult but you still are a child your tastes develop and you start to get somewhat access to more adult things you know when you when you're younger like when you're like 15 you might be watching movies that are rated 18 things like that you know there's you're starting to open it all up and decide what it is you like in the kind of adult space and the theory is that that stuff really locks in when you're like 14 15 and it's funny because when I look back now to when I was 14, 15, it's totally true. And all that stuff's still there. And it's still like the central kind of skeleton of everything that I'm doing and everything that I'm working towards now it goes all the way back to them. I'd love to talk about Moon. Um, so on that film, you know, you were concept designer and VFX supervisor. And so you played quite 
a, a unique role as a kind of visual conciliere. You were not just drawing the art on spec for Duncan, but you're on set and you're having extensive input throughout production to bring those concepts to life. And so what was that experience like? I was awesome. <clears throat> I mean, the thing is about Moon, it wasn't like I was hired to do a job. Like Moon was, when I met Duncan, like we, um, I'd known him for about a year or so um, before I, I didn't know who his dad was when we met. So he was just Duncan from work and we just got on. We were just like friends and like the same stuff. And I was living in Southfields and he was living in Fulham, which are about, they're about like four or five miles away. They're quite close in like Southwest London. And we used to go, we had, there's a pub like in the place called Bootsy Brogan's in Fulham that we used to go drinking at that was like between our two houses. And we, yeah, his flatmate moved back to America and so he ended up moving in with me. And so we lived together for about 11 or 12 years. And that whole time was like, I was an artist trying to do the art stuff. He was just come out of film school wanting to be a director. We both like sci-fi. So we just worked together. We were just set up. I mean, when the company went down, we both ended up working freelance. So we turned our lounge into like a studio and we had our desks next to each other in the lounge and we just work on things all the way, just 24 seven, basically. So he was trying to get established as a director. So he was getting briefs in from thing for things like um, spec commercials, spec promo videos, just all this kind of stuff to try and build a reel. And so everything that he was working on, he, we wanted to do sci-fi stuff. So I'd be like, oh, cool, I can do this. I can do that. I'll I'll do a flying police car. We'll do a future city. We'll do this. We'll just put some, put some cool sci-fi stuff in. And so we ended up just working on everything together. And it was a real grind. It took years and years, but... We worked our way through to doing zero budget promo uh, test stuff all the way through to doing smaller budget stuff then eventually doing like sort of you know 250,000 pound beer commercials and you know like high-end high-end jobs on tv which was awesome and you know so we went from literally just computers in the lounge trying to do anything we could being really frustrated and just trying just in the grind and it worked and we got through to doing um like proper commercials and the whole thing was just me and him working together on everything. And because we just literally had computers next to each other. And the thing that I always kind of enjoyed about this was I'd worked as a concept artist before. I'd worked as a VFX artist before, but all of a sudden it put me in a position where I always kind of thought of it as like having my arms around the project. Cause I'm right there at the beginning when things are getting put together and I'm finishing things up at the end. So it's like, it was very natural for me to just stick around cause I'm at each end. And I've always been one of those kind of handy people where I, I enjoy making props and costumes and stuff. I've always kind of had a knack for that. I'll get on eBay and I'll know what to look for to buy a bunch of things to glue them all together and make like backpacks and, you know, gas masks and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I've always just got pulled into things because I've just been, I'm just kind of handy with that stuff. And when it comes to like things like sets and stuff, um, yeah, I think some of that, I don't I think people think it's more complicated than it actually is like constructing a set. It's basically like a shed. It's just a, a wooden structure. And the idea is you make it look fancy inside, but if you walk behind a shed, you just see a load of panels of wood with a load of wooden supports propped up. That's only ever designed to stand for like six weeks, eight weeks, and then it all gets bulldozers and shoved in a skip. So everything's just put together with nail guns and stuff. And it's they're just not really that complex. You'd be surprised. So yeah, I mean, it's, that's it's, it's the that uh, the magic in a way, the the creating that illusion from. Okay, let me just wind that back then. Creating sets is incredibly difficult, and very few people can do it. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that's one of the realities of, of developing any film that I think we sometimes forget, but like that it, it, projects can take a very long time and the the, the persistence of vision and the kind of like willingness to get back up when it where the knocks happen is such a is a part maybe that we forget when we see the end product, but is, is a huge part of that journey. Yeah, the dark days, they're definitely there. Thing is, though, I always had, I mean, I think I've got a pretty good outlook on stuff generally, like in the same way that when I was at school, I wasn't phased particularly, excuse me, by career, um, career staff telling me not to pursue something because it's hard. But just my response to that was seeing that other people do it. It, it must be possible. And if you can, if you think about it really, um, just on the level, right? No matter how hard something is, if a bunch of people are doing it and can do it, like right now around the world, how many people are making films? Like how many people have written films that are in production? Like there's thousands and thousands like right now. So it's possible. And if you think of it, if you think about how hard it is and think about how, if you think about how special you have to be to be able to do it, like you've got to be lucky, you've got to, you know, you've got to be in some kind of a special position. Consider this, right? How special would you have to be to be completely excluded from that. You'd have to be even more special to never be able to be one of these people, to be purely outside of it and always be there. Um, well, I, um, I want to, I, I'm really interested to dig into archive. I just, I want to ask you in general terms, I'm really interested to hear what is your, in your opinion, what makes good sci-fi? People stories. For me, you'll see this evidenced in Moon, you'll see this in archive. Stories about people uh, the thing, there's nothing more interesting than people at the end of the day. If you're watching a good drama, it's it's always good because of the people in there, the situations they're thrown in and how they react to that situation, what happens. Um, there are different types of sci-fi, like there's all kinds of different types of film. <clears throat> I Moon was really, uh, when me and uh, Duncan were putting Moon together, we were, the whole story came from us just talking about what we felt it needed to be and how things were going to work. And at the time, a lot of sci-fis, it still is really, you know, big expansive uh, movies about the end of the world, high stakes, things you can't really kind of lock onto. I remember um, Transformers dropped whilst we were putting Moon together. And I remember thinking like, I can't get on board with any of this. We've got Sheila LaBeouf, who's a protagonist that we're meant to be on board with. His girlfriend's Megan Fox. His best friend is a robot sports car from space. And he's trying to stop, it's Transformers 2, he's trying to stop a bunch of alien robots blowing up the moon. It's like, I can't get on board with those sticks. Like, I can watch it, shove popcorn in my mouth and go, hey, look at everything exploding, this is fun. But it doesn't take me anywhere. You know, it's it's a roller coaster. You can kind of spin around the room, but it doesn't transport, transport you anywhere. I mean, it doesn't leave you anything after the movie's finished. So for me, really good sci-fi is about stories about people that, and the science fiction element is used to put them in some kind of a predicament or put a spin on a situation that we can kind of understand and then we can kind of go on the journey with them and, and, you know, share their emotions and experience and take the ride. So with Archive, I was very keen to have stakes that people could lock onto. So I chose to write with the themes of love and death, thinking that those are two universal, like, human constants that everybody has got some experience with. So I thought if I write a story about love and death, I can bring people along and there's there's hooks there that people can get into. The strange thing that I wasn't really expecting was I went into it, wrote it, made it, released it. And then when I look at the finished thing, when I look back, I was trying to write a story about love and death. 
And actually what I seem to have done was written a story about jealousy and fear of replacement. Mm-hmm. But that but I think those came are about two... with, with love and death as themes. That's where that came from. Sure, so I guess those are two... Sorry. No, no, just that's really interesting because those are two emotions or responses to those two to love and death. They are very much the kind of that they're the next step, which is what do we do when we're afraid of losing both those things? And so that's really interesting. And I see that certainly in archive. What's all the more remarkable is that um you came up with the idea for this film when your computer hard drives crashed and the fact that that that's as unhuman centric a notion as possible, but you really anchored this film in, um, a, a, well, a, a, hu- a human and several um, conscious beings who are very much rooted in, in in their emotional needs and what those needs cause them to do. Um, I low budget, high concept sci fi is really one of the sought after genres at the moment, and I think films like Lapsis, um, Coherence another earth they're they're doing what you did really well which is having a world that potentially has huge implications that the spin on the world is so different to ours and there is a, a it, it becomes almost there is a temptation to not localize it and focus on very human stakes and i wonder was there what was that a challenge was there ever a version of this where you thought i'd like to see the, the on a global scale what impact archive technology has on us there is archive as the movie as it currently stands is actually half of a story you wouldn't know it because when you watch it it, it's complete but there is actually um a whole bunch of unresolved things there which aren't particularly unresolved in the viewing experience of the first movie but there is another half of the story which when seen in its own context references the original movie and opens up a whole load more um a load of more cans of worms but that's actually something that I'm writing at the moment, but I don't know if that's ever going to become a thing or not. But that is definitely a thing. I'm, I'm happy you picked up on that, actually. So so yes is my answer to that. Yes, there is another half to this. Even though when you watch a movie, it's a very complete experience, that is actually only half of the story. Well, that's exciting to hear, because I feel like it's a world I'd like to see more of. So I'm... I'm... I'd be happy to bring in that world in the future. Let's see. Fingers crossed. Um, well, I think that's all we have time for. I just want to say thank you so much, for joining us gavin it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and everybody go see archive because it's great huge thanks to gavin for that chat archive is currently available to purchase through amazon prime video next week is the final episode of our first season where we have a couple of bonus interviews for you taking you back to where this season started we talk drama with first-time feature director lucy bryden and legendary downton abbey creator Julian Fellows. Until then, this has been Beyond the Frame, presented by Film London, and I'm Adrian Wooten. Thanks very much for listening.